1: the incredible day of epiphany now those of you who grew up in churches with high liturgical worship are probably familiar with epiphany it's a fabulous day and it's very difficult in the modern church to hold back that wise men right to hold back those songs and those images and have something to celebrate today I think that we tried to do a good balance of giving you a little bit, but then keeping you wanting more, right? That's what we try to do. And so today is the day to blow out everything that we have about the Magi, and it's an incredible story. The Magi only appear in the gospel account of Matthew. They are only part of that story. And in the other birth narrative that we have in scripture, the gospel account of Luke, they don't appear at all. Instead, the emphasis is upon the shepherds and the angels in the sky. But the appearance of the Magi is important. It tells us more about who we are and what we are to do as a modern church, ironically. So if we delve right into the text, you'll find that these wise men come from afar. Right, That's who they are. Magi is a Greek transliteration of a word, and the closest we can come to it is to translate it as either wise men or astrologers, right? That they were into watching the stars, and they were a priestly class, highly educated and respected, and often employed by kings. They weren't royalty themselves, but they were employed by other kings to read the skies to give them portents of what was to happen and to help them discern decisions and timing. And so it was that most mighty kingdoms had some version of this class, these magi. Our magi that we refer to in our scripture actually come from Persia. They were remnants of Babylon. And so they came from further east and slightly north of Jerusalem. And having been Part of that group that watches the sky, they noticed a special star. And as that star rose to its full height and started to move, they followed it. They read the signs of the sky and they knew that a king had been born, a very special king, the Messiah. And they went right to the city everybody would expect to go to. Right? If you're looking for our president, we go to Washington, D.C., and here they went to the capital of, the, of Jerusalem in its day that was known as the city of kings thanks to King David and those who followed after him, and they arrive and they're greeted not by this new king but by Herod, and when they tell Herod why they're there, he is filled with fear. What do you mean there's another king? I'm the king. And all of Jerusalem has this angst also because the arrival of the Messiah, while it was something that they had longed for and prayed for and hoped for, they understood it to mean that there would be a time of conflict and war as the Messiah kicked out the Roman conquerors and restored the kingdom. So they thought they were gearing up for war, or at least a conflict between this new king and the current one. And so he calls together all of these people in our scripture. He calls together the priests and the scribes, these people who above all should know that not only were we expecting the Messiah, but that he has been born and where to find him. But you notice they're a little late to the game. And so they have to search through the text and they come across this prophecy that says, ah, in Bethlehem shall we find the Messiah. And so Herod sends the wise men there. And attempts to deceive them by saying, Find the child and then send back word to me because I want to go and worship the child, which was an utter lie, as our text will tell us. He didn't want to worship the child, he wanted to destroy him. He wanted to get rid of his competition. And so he thought he would use the wise men to do that, but God had other plans. And so the wise men go to Bethlehem, where we know that Jesus was born. And there, it says they enter into a house. So Jesus is no longer in a stable, but now in a house. And, of course, that makes sense because it would have taken time to come from the Persian Empire over into Jerusalem alone and then up to Bethlehem. It would have taken time and travel. They didn't have the luxury of booking a flight on Travelocity and zipping over as we can. Instead, they traveled by horse and camel, and as they finally made their way into Bethlehem, Jesus no longer would have been a newborn baby. But instead, our text tells us that he was up to two years old because after they leave and Herod realizes that he has now been deceived, the deceiver has been deceived, he sends word that all of the children ages two and under in Bethlehem are to be killed. He decides to strike out and eliminate his competition before the Christ child can grow into a man. But again, God knows better. And so it is that they arrive in a house and they're greeted by a child somewhere between birth and two years old and his mother. And I always wonder if Mary thought to herself, wow, if it couldn't get any weirder than the night I gave birth, here we go. They would have come with fancy robes. They would have come with an entourage. Because even though the king didn't come himself, he did send his priestly class and they would have had servants and caretakers and enter into this space. And there they open up these incredible chests. And how many of them were there? The text doesn't actually tell us how many wise men came. Traditionally, we assume that there were three because there were three gifts, gold, frankincense and myrrh. However it probably would make more sense that there were many wise men, that there there were more than that. We put God in a box by saying that there were only three, three gifts, three guys. Instead, why couldn't there have been 12? Four carrying each kind of gift, an abundance of the gifts. We worship a God of abundance, do we not? So why couldn't God have sent more? I think it's probably likely that there were more than three enough to make Herod take notice and become very frightened. And so as they enter in and they open up these chests and they show Mary and somewhere about a toddler that they have brought these gifts, it's hard for us to understand what that meant, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And you've probably heard people tell you about the symbolism of the gifts. I'd like to give you some practical parallels for those gifts. It would be as if they had brought the entire contents of their 401k, their bank account, and the deed to their home. That's how much these gifts were worth. And Jesus was going to need that. Because as we read, shortly after the wise men leave, those gifts have to fund the flight to Egypt, the staying there, and the return. Those gifts are crucial. They're not decorative pieces that they put on the mantle. Instead, they are the means by which God would provide for the Holy Family and keep them safe and secure, even as they traveled to a land from which God had freed God's people. These gifts were vital and necessary, and they had work to do. And so as they received these gifts, we take note of them, of course. Gold is a proper gift and one that is easily tradable even now. If somebody were to hand you a gold bar, you could make use of it very quickly. And the frankincense, that was used in worship. God dictated it would be used in worship in the tabernacle and the temple, and it was. It was a resin that was used as incense. It was part of the perfume of worship. And so even though it was used in the worship of the Israelites and later the Jews, it was also used in the worship in Egypt and in Persia and many nations of Mesopotamia as was myrrh. Myrrh was a precious and expensive oil. Not only was it also used in worship to anoint, but it was used in the preparation of the dead. And because worship and funerals are constant and rolling, they were readily transferable, and they were means by which Jesus, Joseph, and Mary could support themselves. So these gifts come, and they come in enough abundance to bridge the gap between the stay at Bethlehem and ultimately the return to Nazareth. And these gifts were vital. If they didn't have them, what would happen when they got to Egypt? What fate would have awaited this young child and his family? We're asked to look at Epiphany with new eyes every year. After a while, though, it gets a little difficult to look at the same kind of setting and see something new. Other than picking out differences between nativities, what we often fail to do is realize the silence of the story. You notice that the wise men don't say very much, where can I find Jesus? And they go. They don't ask for the quickest route or the easiest route. They don't ask if there's a loophole that they can get there quicker. Instead, they simply hear and obey. And Joseph and Mary are no different There have been countless times in my life where God has sent me someplace, and I have had to crunch the numbers, look at my calendar, figure out the most efficient and cost-effective way of doing it. And then most of the time, it also involves a little bit of conversation. Yeah, I know you want me to do this, but it could at least be in Florida. And yet that's not part of the plan. That's not what happens here. In a dream, as Joseph had received in a dream before not to set Mary aside, in a dream, an angel appears, the voice of God, and says, take your family and flee to Egypt. And Joseph does. There's no discussion. Mary, I think we should sit down and try to figure out when the best time to do this will be. I know, you, you know you've got a young child. Maybe we should do it overnight. I'm not really sure. You know, my parents are coming. We might you not know, factor that in. And maybe we should upgrade our donkey been through a lot no do they have a three-star inn in egypt because i'm kind of sick of staying in stables no instead without exception without anything out of faith he picks up the family and they go and the fact that we don't get bogged down in discussion and pleading there's no jonahizing this text no 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 not going there You want me to go to Egypt? Forget it. I'm going north. I've always wanted to live by the water. He never says that. He goes and he does because he has been richly blessed for a purpose. Joseph doesn't decide to take this windfall and buy a bigger house. Joseph takes the windfall and does the will of God. And if that isn't something that we need to hear in modern America, I don't know what is that our blessing is given for purpose, that we have been blessed to continue the will of God in our lives. And so it is that the wise men give us a model, a model for our ministry, not only as individuals, but as the church. And so as we've been in this season of Advent and Christmas in preparation, it was also the time of transition fiscally for the church, right? The church closes its books on the last day of 2016. It enters into a new fiscal year, and for some reason that always involves a budget. And so it was that as I was trying to help the staff prepare for Christmas and Christmas Eve, we're forced to look at numbers, And the only numbers I've ever really been interested in are 3, 7, 12, and 40. And the budget's a lot bigger than that. And so we started looking at the budget, and it occurred to me that if there were three gifts that were very important in the Epiphany story, then maybe there are three areas that we really need to focus on in the new year. Three areas where we will use our gifts to grow and honor and worship Christ the King just as the Magi did almost 2,000 years ago? Is it possible that there were three places where not only was there a propensity for excellence in Crozet United Methodist Church, but a desire and a need to grow? And so I did something a little crazy. Why are they laughing? I'm not even there yet. They were at the 8.30, they know. They also know I'm wearing like a liquid gold dress under this robe. It's epiphany. So I decided to do something that most people don't think is a good idea. I increased the budget remarkably. I increased the budget. Because I have a belief that if we're going to be a growing church and we're called to be a growing church, because not only have I read you the beginning of Matthew, but I know how Matthew ends with the Great Commission, I know that Jesus said our job is to make more disciples, not just to increase the number of people who check member on our roles, but to make disciples, then I know that a growing church needs a growing budget, that a growing church needs to reflect the passions and the gifts and the inclinations of its people which are magnifications of the passion of our God. And so I will present to you now three areas that I have requested that we grow our budget in. And the first feels very apparent, and that is our children. That our ministries, two and for children, are vital to a growing church. I can't tell you what it felt like on christmas eve at three o'clock to stand here and have over 60 children fill the space between the chancel and the front pew 60 children i have friends in churches that don't see 60 children in the entire year and we saw them at one service on one night that is a gift to have that many children and that means that we have to encourage them and strengthen them and teach them and guide them and love them that means that our ministries must reflect their specific and individual needs. And so it is that we've poured money in, into our resources for children, whether it's visual aids for children's time or chapel for preschool or in worship, whether it's strengthening our curriculum for Sunday school, providing more means for our minister of children's worship. But most assuredly, we're going to be sinking in and investing money into Our vacation Bible camp this year. A crucial place, one of the most evangelistic and high-profile events any church runs, and it's for children. And so we're going to be doing that this year, focusing on our children, for one. The second one also revealed itself in abundance at Christmas Eve, and that is our youth. Our 5 o'clock Christmas Eve worship service was led by our youth, and it was led in abundance by youth. Not only were they participating in our music ministry, both singing and playing instruments, but they were leading us in prayer and liturgy and in readings. They were very much present, high-profile, involved, and good. We have good youth in this church. They're good-looking, they're pretty good acting, and they can really lead some worship. That's a blessing. It's very rare you get the trifecta. And yet, there they were. It was so incredible to see over a dozen youth participating in worship that I got mobbed at the end of the worship service by visitors. How did you get all those youth? Well, we bribed them. No, I'm kidding. We don't bribe them, they're passionate, they asked to be involved. In fact, right up at the very end, a couple days beforehand, I gave up my sermon text because someone came up and said, I want to read. Here you go. At 8.30, we accidentally had one too many communion stewards, but two of them were youth, so guess who didn't serve? Because part of leading is knowing when you should step back and let them take their place. And so, yes, our youth are vital. Our church has made our youth a priority in its planning, and it's now time to make a priority in the implementation. Our staff pastor parish relations committee, the personnel committee of our church, has been talking about this and prayerfully discerning and pleading for God to see the clear future for our youth. Even now we are discussing whether or not we should be hiring one or two positions. So as we continue to meet and discern that, They're not going to work for free, and that wouldn't be just. And so we've increased the budget. We've also increased the budget so that this year, our confirmands will go on a confirmation retreat. Now, I asked 830 how many of them have been on a confirmation retreat, and my heart still aches. Please tell me some of you have been on a confirmation retreat. Yes? Yes. Thank God. Thank you. There's going to be more of you next year. A confirmation retreat. Not only is retreating an essential piece of United Methodism history and tradition, but it's an opportunity for our youth to leave their households, to get away from their parents, and have some time with each other and with God to really discern who they are in the life of the church, what they believe and what they want to do. We don't force them to become members. In fact, if a youth stood up here and said, I don't want to become a church member, and their parents were like, yes, you do, the answer is no, they don't. They make the decision, but we have to equip and empower them to make the decision. And so I've put in $1,500 for a confirmation retreat. I've also put in $5,000 into their mission line. $5,000 so that they can do mission themselves. That they can choose what they're passionate about and how they want to live out their faith. I did the same thing for the children. $5,000 for children to be in mission work. Because that's important. We live out our faith in the way in which we touch and care for others. This budget's going up, isn't it? And so the youth are vital. And I want the youth to be involved with our vacation Bible camp. I want them leading and planning and participating. I want them to enjoy it as much as the children do. Which means that I have to expend money there too. And the last place, the third place after children and youth are our adults. Because I don't know how many of you feel like you're finished. I got Jesus, I'm good. If you do, don't raise your hand. We are a people who are progressing, always deepening, going into a more mature state. It doesn't matter how old we are. We are continuing to grow in love for God and for one another. But that will stagnate if we don't invest In small groups. I put in $2,000 for adult retreats. Guess who's going? I want you all to encounter what it is to withdraw from your daily life and just sit with Jesus Christ. I want you, if you are interested, to learn more about doctrine and theology. In fact, next month I'm going to hold a retreat on communion. We're going to take communion. We're going to learn about how it exists in other denominations. We're going to enjoy taking communion and giving it to one another. But it's going to cost money because communion elements aren't free. And so the budget increases again. But it's important that we focus on our maturity adults because who's going to help the children and the youth with theirs? I can't do it alone. I need you, and I won't do it alone. I'm too social for that. (laughs) Y'all are coming. We are doing this together because this is the will of God. Not a priest of God, but a priesthood of believers of God is what the scripture calls for. And that is who we are called to be. And so this budget has gone up by tens of thousands of dollars. And when I went before the finance committee, I thought, they are going to hate me. They may, but you know what? They believe in this because they believe in you. Because time after time, you have shown that you can do what God asks. Over a thousand people in this space, over Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, over a thousand, we beat our previous numbers by 350 to 400 people. Because people here now know that they can find Jesus in this building. And Jesus is here for more than Christmas. So we must continue the work. Over a thousand people that yearn to know and touch and taste Jesus. And then if that weren't enough, if that weren't enough to celebrate, which believe me, that's enough. But if it's not enough to celebrate... The offering that was given over Christmas Eve and Christmas Day was enough to sponsor two local children to attend our preschool for an entire year. Two four-year-olds are going to radically change their entire educational career because of the goodness of the people that came to this church. We are going to give them not just a leg up, but a push up and over the hurdles that would otherwise exist if you went into school cold nowadays. They will go in having been loved on by our church and our preschool. They will go into kindergarten prepared with not only essential social skills, but educational and intellectual ones. They are going to encounter God in a radical way through the pursuit of wisdom. And if that isn't biblical, I'm not really sure what is. And we were able to do that. So I know that God has blessed us abundantly. I know that we can bless others, and it's high time we will. It is time that we focus, because this year is going to be incredible. That's why I'm going on vacation. I have to rest up, because this year is going to be insane. This is what's going to happen. I have faith. I have an unshakable faith in Jesus Christ. Unshakable, and trust me, many have tried. Many have tried. And yet it is there. And yet, and yet my faith in Jesus Christ is only slightly more than my faith in you. Because in six months, you have rocked my world. You have changed my understanding of what church can and should be. And if you can do that for me and I'm trained in this, what are you going to do for them? What are you going to do for people who have not yet tasted the goodness of life? And understood what it means to be free, redeemed, loved, known, and valued. What's going to happen? So in November, you all sent me to a youth conference. You're going to regret that. But you all sent me to a youth conference. And I got some crazy ideas. I've been foisting them off on the staff ever since I got back. And it's high time that I gave you one right, that I gave you a little bit of the insight. So I got to take a seminar class called Dragons and Doctrine. And it was this really cool thing. I got to geek out as I gathered with other people who were fans of Tolkien, Harry Potter, C.S. Lewis. I mean, who doesn't love dragons? Love dragons. They're very shiny. (laughs) And they love gold love dragons more every moment and so I thought there has to be a way when you start talking to children about dragons whether we're talking about the lovable Elliot from Pete's dragon or whether we're talking about the detestable and deplorable smog of the hobbit or whether we're even talking about those fun and fascinating dragons of how to train your dragon I own that one too Kids love dragons. And I thought, if kids love dragons, then we have to be able to combine that. And because this is the church of Jesus Christ and there is nothing beyond redemption, we're going to redeem some dragons for the kids this year. We're going to do something a little crazy. We're going to do two whole months of a worship theme about dragons and doctrine. Conquering dragons by defending our doctrine. We're going to transform this space into a dragon's den. We're going to make it so that the children not only are excited to come, but they're the ones standing up going, "Uh, Mom, Dad, we're going to be late. And you need to hurry. And I don't care if they want to dress up like a princess. I don't care if they want to dress up like a knight. I'll let them wear their pajamas on Christmas Day. I do not care as long as they are here. And we are going to teach them and ourselves the fundamentals of our faith because There are plenty of people who want to poke holes at our core beliefs. We can independently and archaeologically prove that Jesus of Nazareth existed, a historical human being, but that doesn't make him the Son of God. So I am going to equip you and I am going to equip our children and our youth to defend that doctrine. Ephesians says to put on the armor of God. Well, you can't put on the armor if you don't know where it is. So we are going to grow by learning how to talk intelligently about our church and what we believe. Was Jesus born to the Virgin Mary? Yes. And I can help you articulate why. Because as fun as it is for you to send people to me, that's not always practical. Sometimes you need to know why. Sometimes you need to be able to tell your children or your grandchildren. Sometimes you need to be able to answer questions from other adults. So I understand you go to church all the time, but what do you do with this weird doctrine? It's not weird, and here's why. And so we're going to do this. And Vacation Bible Camp is going to be a five-day, we're going back to Monday through Friday, a five-day prep for the children so that they have a leg up on all the rest of you. So that when we get to those five doctrines, the kids are like, oh, I got this. I know this. Sit back. And we're going to take something that is fun and fanciful and dive back into the history of the church because this is all Renaissance Renaissance time. We're talking about the church was a driving force in culture back then. We're going to explore through lettering scrolls how Gutenberg made the first Bible. We're going to have a mini Renaissance fair on the Saturday between the end of vacation Bible camp and the start of our summer long worship session. And I've already asked Mike if he can smoke 500 turkey legs. And he said yes. No pressure. We are going to have fun. I want these children to start telling their friends what's going on. And I want their friends to say to their parents, why can't we go there? I want youth to say, I am so involved in this, we need to make sure that I'm not missing. And that if we have to go for a week, we've planned a worship series where you can jump in and jump out. Now hopefully you want to come and be a part of the whole thing, but jump in and jump out. So that things come up in the summer. I get that. I understand that. But overall, the summer is a fun time. And I want this church to reflect the goodness of God and the joy that we have as Christians. And above all, I want our kids to look back and go, I had a really good time learning about Jesus at that church. I want us to set a high bar, not only for ourselves, but for our children and youth. Because I believe that if you set the bar high, they will rise to it. If we make our standards high for excellent worship, for transformative encounter with Jesus Christ, then that is what we will see at the bare minimum. And so I want us to push ourselves this year. Because God has blessed us in many ways and gifts, graces, time, talent, presence, prayer. We are blessed. And God didn't give it to us so that we could squander it on ourselves and our own households. Like Mary and Joseph and Jesus, we have been blessed to continue the work and will of God. And so let us do that. I want you to be able to say to whomever, I believe in Jesus Christ. And even if they don't believe any of the defenses that I give you, even if they completely negate the doctrine of this church, I want you to stand firm and say, I know that Jesus Christ is Lord because I know him. I have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. I have experienced him and encountered him over and over again. And nothing you say can take him away from me. Nothing. He is my God, my Lord, my Savior. And I want him to be yours too. This is why we are here. Matthew starts with the birth of Jesus Christ, but it ends with the birth of the church. Go forth and baptize, making disciples, teaching them everything that I have taught you. In the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit, he says. This I bequeath to you. He doesn't leave them with just a blessing and a promise to return. Instead, Jesus tells those first disciples, You have work to do. And so here we are, the spiritual descendants of them, and brothers and sisters in Christ, we have work to do. And if you have to work, I'm descended from Irish people. we got to have a little fun. Let's do this together. Let's make 2017 a year that people will be talking about for a long time. It is high time that Crozet is on the lips of people, not just here in town, not just in the Charlottesville district, not just in the Virginia annual conference of the United Methodist Church. They're already starting to talk about us in other conferences of the United Methodist Church. They're already starting, and they haven't seen anything yet. Will you do this with me? Will you do this for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? If you will, then this year is going to be a heck of a good time. And for the glory of God, may it be so. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.